0: So I need to say that no laws were broken when we went to the Ukraine, all right? I just got to put it out there. We were ready to declare, I was ready to declare, but there was no signs, no forms, nobody asked. I just, I didn't break any laws. Uh, I want to talk to you about the joy basket. Thank you, somebody got it. Uh, This last month, uh, not only did we come in even, we came in $5,000 above. So, uh, thank you for your giving and your continued giving and our 90-day challenge is still going out there for those. Uh, If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back a few weeks and listen to my family chats. I need to thank all those who picked rocks on Friday and who spread soil yesterday as we're trying to beautify the grounds around here, turn it into a sports field for kids. And next weekend is really important, Gather Women Conference. Uh, Women of Soul Sanctuary, if you haven't registered already, Go to gatherwomen.com and register there. It's important, women. This is for you. And uh, take the time. And uh, gentlemen, I could use a couple of hands to help me in the kitchen. Yes, because we're going to serve the women on that Saturday. So if you're available, come and talk to me personally. We have a few gentlemen who are prepared to step up and to be a part, but we want to serve the ladies. And uh, we'd love for you to be a part of that. And then uh, helping out with uh, the Gather Conference, I can use a few volunteers to show up Thursday night at 7. You're pointing at your husband. I see that hand. Um, uh, Show up here, and we're going to be changing our backdrop. uh, And it's going to stay up for the summer, but I just need about uh, 8 or 10 guys to help us bring these pallet backdrops back up. So that's where we're at. Our steering committee consists of nine people. Uh, One of the seats... It's uh, uh, reserved for people who are 30 and under and uh, for the last four years Tamara Craker has held out that seat and her term has now ended and so at the end of this month she'll be finished so what we do and with our governance and our constitution we come to you the body And we say, if there's somebody that you uh, look to, you see spiritual maturity in them, and they meet the qualifications, which for this specific seat is, number one, you've got to be a believer, but number two, 30 and under, um, uh, we would ask that you would prayerfully consider it, and if it does, I'd ask that you'd send me an email. And in that email, you just put nomination in the subject line, and I nominate, and give me a name, And uh, I'll take it from there, we'll approach the person, and uh, by July 1st, uh, we want to be in the position to uh, elect, uh, our our board elects that person to sit on the board, so an opening for a person 30 and under, if you know of somebody, please let us know. All right, Jesus and Divorce. Matthew 5, 27 to 32 is a loaded passage, but before we go there, I need to shout from a, the mountaintops a happy belated anniversary to my beautiful wife of 29 years of marriage. Again I was a bad husband, I was on the other side of the world. Not only did I miss Mother's Day, but I, I missed my anniversary. I didn't even buy her a babushka, which I should have. Um, but uh, courtesy of my staff, uh, not necessarily me. Uh, so you know I I, you just need to know publicly I would do it again in a heartbeat I'm not sure if you would but I know I would and uh, I know I'm a piece of work and that you do put up with me and uh, but I'm proud to have you as my uh, along my side as my spouse and my friend And my co-pastor and the mother of my children and so many roles and hats that you wear all year round and just publicly I want to say I love you. And the idea behind marriage is that in a dark world in which we live, in this dark world at times even appears to be dead and what we do is we find two people who love each other and... Usually these people who love each other, and of course you two over there know exactly what I mean, dating and happy and looking awkwardly, and you got a, an arm around here, There, good to go Bruce, and it's going to be good to see you on Saturday in the kitchen, because she said you're going to be there. But when we see people expressing love, it brings light into our world, does it not? And this is why, honestly, this is why so many people love weddings, um, and you're thinking, well, I don't know if I'm one of those people. Yeah, yeah, you are, because this is where even tough guys get tears in their eyes. Uh, you know, when she comes down the aisle, and it doesn't matter how tough or how strong you think you are, because when you see her beauty, you get a tear in your eye. Do you not? Yeah. No, not the women. Guys. Tough guys. Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. We do. Why? Because at the ceremony... And I get the privilege of this all the time. I watch the groom, and I watch the groom watch his bride come down that aisle. And the reason that we're moved, even when we're prone to ask the question, who chooses to get married on a long weekend, on a Saturday of a long weekend? Nevertheless, the reason we're moved in the world is that our world appears to be dark, and then at some point there's this light. Love in ours there was a lot of color in our wedding I preferred to call it a Filipino wedding and I say that reflect because it was so many colors it was so bright and yet in a world at times it appears to be dead but here's some life and the idea of, of this wedding of any wedding is that there's this love our love for each other would actually flow over and spill out and leak on to the rest of us. And that's what happens on wedding ceremonies, on wedding days. You know, providing you don't have a groomzilla or a bridezilla or a mother-in-lawzilla, you have this oozing, this love that flows over. And that's why, really, we love weddings. It's a time of celebration. It's a time where our world stops and, and we're enamored by tinkling the glasses and seeing people kiss. But now we move to our text. And we need to know what's going on here behind the scenes because uh, um, I got to thank both Jordans who picked up some difficult passages and did a great job of explaining them and applying them to our lives while we were away. So now before we jump into verse 27, again, I need to note that there's this fairly significant factor in the way that Jesus interprets the law as opposed to how it's being interpreted by the scribes, and Pharisees of the day. In many sermons, or in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount itself is a face-off between Jesus and Judaism. And here what we see is that Jesus has dropped the glove, so to speak, and we're seeing the beginnings of why the religious leaders hated him so much. We see this confrontation. It actually takes place in a number of uh, situations, such as Matthew 20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to make it into the kingdom of God. And again, these are pretty strong words, especially for the scribes and Pharisees who thought that they already had a line to the kingdom of God. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the people came away basically just saying, wow. Why? Because after Jesus' teachings, they were amazed at the way that he taught with authority, not like the others, not like the scribes, the teachers. And so the Sermon on the Mount begins this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, who will be his most aggressive opponents throughout the gospel. Matthew 5, Matthew 6. Jesus is dealing with many of the weaknesses of Judaism, but the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees is somewhat hidden. Can't really see what's going on. And eventually, when we come to Matthew 23, we'll see that all hell breaks loose. But we'll be coming to that. Nothing's concealed. There's nothing subtle about what Jesus is saying. And the very things Jesus is dealing with right now is very subtle. But uh, in Matthew 23, it's like the neon lights come on. So in Matthew 5, Jesus pronounces the blessings of the Beatitudes. He does it in a backwards way. It's the upside-down kingdom. He's reversing the whole value system of the Pharisees. And then now we find it necessary that he begins to speak about the law. And as Jordan McClellan explained very well, Jesus came as the one who is the fulfillment of the law. And Matthew tells us that, you know, these things happen in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So early on in his ministry, Jesus began to butt heads with the religious guys over the interpretation and the application of the law. So Jesus chooses to heal on the Sabbath, and he does it over and over again. And it drives the Pharisees crazy because they look at Jesus and they see him as a lawbreaker, not a healer, because their teachings said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath unless it was an emergency. Now Matthew wanted us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, and yet from the Pharisees' point of view, He's the one who's actually setting the law aside. He is the one, Jesus is the one who's soft on sin from their point of view. So when we come to Matthew five twenty one and the following, we have very specific examples of how Jesus demonstrates that in one case, he's pro-law in the sense that he doesn't abolish it. He doesn't get rid of it. In fact, he enhances the law. He takes it further than anybody else would have ever expected or even wanted him to do. And that's where we find ourselves in our lesson. And so we read in our text, it says this, verse 27, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anybody who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anybody who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anybody who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we come to the issues of adultery and then divorce. We must understand when we read this passage that these two uh, uh, scripture sections are closely related. Some, some break it up, they're, they're actually related. And so in this passage, Jesus is talking about adultery, adultery. And we need to understand that adultery is a very specific sexual sin. Adultery is a sin that's committed by a married person who engaged in an illicit intimate relationship outside of their marriage. It's very specific. Um, Purnia is another Greek term uh, used for, to describe all sexual immorality outside the bonds of marriage. So we understand that when we're looking at this passage, adultery is a marital sin. And it's a sin to be taken very seriously. It's pointed out by Jesus. So when you look at the sexual sins, where, do, you know, where does he get it? It goes all the way back into the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22 says that if you know, a married man is illicitly involved with another woman, then they're both to be stoned to death. That's the end of it. That was the law. So adultery, Old Testament times, requires capital punishment. Even in New Testament times, remember the woman is caught in adultery is dragged to Jesus. They're ready to stone her. So this is what they practiced. Yet in the same chapter in Deuteronomy, it, it talks about a woman who's a virgin. She's not engaged. And it says that if a man forcibly takes her, this man's to pay a dowry. And if the father consents, then he's to marry her and he can never divorce her. And you you read these two passages of scripture. You go, wait a minute! Like this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why is it, you know, that one can do this terrible thing to an unmarried woman and gets what appears to be a slap on the wrist, while a married person who commits adultery actually gets the death penalty? Like, what's the difference? The difference is actually very significant. The difference is the breaking of the marital covenant. And the breaking of one's marriage covenant defiles the marriage. The breaking of a marriage vow is a most serious offense to God. I just need to let that sit. Now as we read our text, you cannot help but read it and see that it's directed towards men, right? and uh, it's male-orientated. Does that then mean that somehow that this instruction concerning adultery doesn't relate to women? I don't think so at all. But uh, let me tell you why it's specifically male-orientated. When we look at the issue of divorce as described in the Old Testament, it, it, it is just the man, it is only the man who can issue the divorce. We don't read about Um, uh, Jewish women getting divorces in the Old Testament where they are the initiators. It's just the man who was male-dominated society. In my opinion, Jesus is forcing this maleness, if I can put it that way, because of who his target is, describes the Pharisees. And so he's aiming right at these religious rulers. And so when you look at this situation, yes, Jesus is talking about men. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about adultery. And it seems that Jesus is zeroing in on those who felt very safe. And the scribes and the Pharisees think that they have a sort of home field advantage when it comes to dealing with Jesus, because they're really smug people. They actually accuse Jesus frequently throughout his ministry of associating with sinners, including those sinners who are sexually immoral. And when he does so, you know, the, 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 the Pharisees, they're, they're angry. It just incensed them all the more. So from the Pharisees' point of view, Jesus is often soft on sin particularly sexual sin. Of course, he wouldn't stone a woman caught in adultery. And, you know, although Moses commanded that they be stoned, right? Deuteronomy 22, but he wouldn't do it. So when Jesus talks about sexual immorality, these guys are standing back and they're going like, bring it, Jesus, we're waiting for you. You know, we're ready. We have the advantage. Because you know what, Jesus, we haven't committed adultery. We're ready to go. But Jesus has something to say to them. And he finds them guilty on every single dimension of adultery as he defines it. Jesus in good style, he takes it to the next level and he says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery in our heart. Now the word look, let's understand what's being said here. Um, It's an emphasis not so much on look, it is more than a look. Other translations use it as leering or staring. And and it's not just making a normal mental observation. Oh, that's a beautiful woman. The fact is somebody's eye can be catched. We can see somebody that we're attracted to. That's fine. The eye notices that. But it's the stopping and it's the going back. It's the head turning. It's the leering. It's the locking on. It's the thought that, oh, I want to touch this person. I want to sleep with this person. That's what Jesus is speaking about. You with me? Okay, good, because I just heard a cricket. That's all I'm hearing. Now now Jesus has everybody's attention and yours as well. Now who of us, if you think about it, male or female, doesn't find ourselves guilty in this analogy? In verses 29 and 30, he, he now comes to the actions we ought to take in response to that. He says, if your right hand causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into, your hell, into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Mr. Potato Head. Beautiful. So what is, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Like, our right... Eye is our dominant eye, so to speak. And Jesus is saying, well then, if you're doing this, pluck it out. How many of you are literalists? <laughs> it gives us a problem at this point in time. We have two hands, right? He says, cut off what? Your right hand. Technically, your dominant hand. But what do you think? If we cut off, plucked out both our eyes, cut off both our hands, that wouldn't stop the problem of mental immorality, would it? So then what does Jesus mean? I don't think Jesus randomly chose members of the body to deal with. He chose those in which we look and in which we touch, our eyes and our hands. And you have to agree with me at this point in time that these are big elements in the realms of immorality, in the realm of adultery. So what he said is not that we stop the looks by plucking out our eyes or the touch by cutting off our hands, but that we stop it no matter what it takes. That's the illustration he's, he's, he's bringing across. We must stop looking that way. We must take drastic measures in ourselves and how we deal with people, especially if we're married or if they're married. Uh, We, In our culture, we almost have to wear blinders when you think about it because it's in in magazines, it's on billboards, it's wherever we turn. Our culture is seeking to grab us with sexual temptation. Let's just be honest, it's there. And technology, well, lust is now promoted in ways we have never seen before. And you know and what Jesus is saying is that we are to take sin seriously and realize that it kills. Jesus tells me that when I sin, I just don't break the law in one point. I I break the law in every point. And so we need to think about it this way. Here the scribes and the Pharisees are saying, you know, murder from last week and adultery. You know, oh, you know, Jesus, we're clean on these things. You know, this is going to be a cakewalk. But before Jesus gets done, these guys are guilty right across the board. And what we need to understand here is that what Jesus is saying is actually very evangelistic. The law's purposes was not to make us perfect so we could go to heaven by good works. See, that's what the Pharisees were doing. Do the good works, we're going to go to heaven. That's not what the purpose of the law was. The purpose of the law was to show us that our hearts and our hands are unclean, that we have nothing to command to us before God. And the reason that Jesus appears to be soft, let's say, on the woman caught in adultery is because he came not only to show us that we are sinners, but he came to bear... The penalty of our sin. And this is what it's about. that the Lord, This is what the Lord's table is about. That he died for sinners. He bore the penalty for all of our guilt. He bore that penalty. He offers us the gift of salvation. And that's why he appears to be soft to the Pharisees. It's because Jesus wants to save. He offers salvation through his work on the cross of Calvary. Not on our work by the rules and regulations that we have to do. So he keeps on a roll. And he says, it's been said, if anybody divorces his wife, he's got to give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Again, you see that there's sexual sin taking place and defined two very different ways here. And anybody who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So for me personally, growing up in a Christian culture back in the 60s and 70s, when somebody got divorced, it was a scandal. And maybe many of you know what I'm talking about. Even even 30s, 40s, and 50s in our culture, divorce was a scandal. It was only something that would happen in Hollywood. But many churches would actually kick people out if they were divorced. And if they didn't kick them out and they allowed them to attend, many divorced people were unable to serve or provide leadership in any manner of any church. And so divorce and remarriage was one of these scarlet letter sins that people were forced to wear. And, and again, growing up in that environment, I was taught that, you know, since God hated divorce, a divorce was never an option. And the Bible is very clear on this matter. So, you know, so I'm taking all my historical baggage and then asking myself, so what does the Bible say on divorce? See, for for thousands of years, thousands from the beginning of time, people struggled with what is the right thing to do when it comes to marriage, when it comes to separation, when it comes to divorce, and when it comes to remarriage. Historically, thousands of years. And so today, if if maybe you're finding yourself and you're in this area and you don't know what the right thing to do is, listen, you're not alone because there have been thousands, maybe millions of people who have gone ahead of you in your shoes. And a thorough reading of the scriptures of the Bible clearly shows us that it too wrestles with the complexity of divorce. You know, first, when we look at the scriptures, we see that divorce goes against God's ideal. Before the fall, God establishes a pattern for all humanity in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, when we look at Scripture, we see that the pre-fall ideal is reiterated again when Jesus is asked about divorce and remarriage. In Matthew 19, we'll come across it again. He goes back to the garden to establish God's ideal for marriage. In verses 4 to 6, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to the wife, the two shall become one flesh. So the no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, Jesus adds two. He heightens the law. And so from these two verses, it's plain that God's desire for a man to hold fast to his wife and not divorce her. That's the, that's the ideal. We also look, as we go through scripture, we see that divorce itself goes against God's gospel. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's explaining how the gospel impacts marriage of all things. Go figure. So in the context, he calls Christians to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. And then to submit themselves, husbands and wife, we're to submit ourselves, interesting, to one another. Verses 21. And explaining how the wife should submit to the husband... And then the standards get higher that the husband, gentlemen, you and I, should die for our wives. I'll take the submission any day. You want trade? Like, I'm, I'm good for that. In this context, Paul goes on, he compares the wife to the church, he compares the husband, you and I. Gentlemen, we're compared to Christ. I don't measure up. Bruce, I don't measure up. But that's what he does. And the husbands play the part of Christ. Wives play part of the church. So when husbands and wives play their parts well, they marvelously show Christ's death and the church's life and resurrection. And, but when they don't, when we pursue divorce, we actually dramatize an anti-gospel. Interesting. Interesting. Malachi two fourteen 14 to 15 is the key text that affirms that God hates divorce. In the context, Malachi explains that the Lord doesn't accept the people's offering. He's actually mad at the religious leaders here. And the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirits in their union? And what was the one God seeking, God's offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And then it goes on and says, for I hate divorce. Interesting. In his designs, in the marriage, uh, in Isra- marriage in Israel was to, meant to produce godly offspring, but now divorce has eviscerated his plans. It, it re- ruined the nation. It was being practiced by the religious leaders, and of course, um, the same can be said of any nation where families are torn apart by divorce. And so God hates divorce because it rejects His design and causes so much unnecessary pain. And now Moses permits divorce. When you think about it though when we go to Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4 Moses is right. He says when a man takes a wife and marries her if then she finds sorry if then he finds no favor if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her we're going to come back to that. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. You see the progression that Moses is doing here. And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that's an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. In short, what we see is that Moses is permitting divorce. And it was a way to mitigate the effects of sinful hearts of people. They were doing it. And that word divorce there, apolueo, means to, now here it's interpret. Divorce means to loose, to um, unbind, to send away. That's what's being said here. You'll notice that that word divorce was not a mutual parting. But rather it was more one-sided. And apparently, what we know from history is that men were too quickly to dismiss their wives for any number of reasons. And so Deuteronomy 24 steps in to say, look at if you divorce your wife, you can't have her back. That's exactly what it's saying. Think twice before you act. You cannot trade women like cattle. Because that's what was happening in that time. Like it or not, that was the ancient time. And by no means does it judge divorce as good, because divorce in itself is not a virtuous practice. Nevertheless, even this instruction in Deuteronomy was abused. So we need to ask ourselves, as Jesus steps up here and he begins to talk, what is going on behind the scenes? See, we understand that there's already this large discussion of divorce going on in the culture of Jesus, believe it or not. So in ancient times, thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, the wife was just treated like property. The husband could get rid of her at any time for any reason he wanted to. If the husband sent her away, if he kicked her out of the tent, she would leave. She wouldn't have any rights. She wouldn't have any dignity. She wouldn't have no way to make provision. And so if you were a wife, if you were that piece of property, so to speak, and you were sent out of out way by your husband and you had nothing, you're simply in this barbaric world by yourself. You have, think about it, no protection. You have no dignity. You have no rights. You have no way to provide for yourself. And so when women were sent away, what profession did many of them end up in? Banking? Prostitution? Banking? Prostitution? Pretty close. (laughs) So Moses shows up 4,000 years ago or so. He begins to write the first five books of the Bible, right, as dictated to him by God. And, and he deals with this issue of divorce. And, and not because divorce is a good thing. But what Moses is doing is he's acknowledging the reality that divorce is taking place. And Moses doesn't condone it. He doesn't say it's a good thing. But he acknowledges the reality. And he steps up and he says, if you must divorce, if you find something, and he says, indecent of her, You must give her a certificate of divorce. And so from a historical perspective, the Mosaic law basically said that if a man was to divorce his wife, that that he had to go through this process of writing an official, legal, recognized certificate of divorce. He didn't write it on a napkin. And so if you had to go through that much trouble, if you had to go through that much time, then maybe, just maybe, you would reconsider or by giving her a certificate of divorce was a way of restoring her dignity, giving her honor and virtue in a culture where women who were sent away had nothing. Do you see the difference? Now, it may still be barbaric to us today, but during the time of Moses here, this was a giant leap. Think about it. This was revolutionary at the time, and so in some respects, Deuteronomy 24 is actually a radical empowering of pro-women legislation. That was actually seen as this revolutionary step forward. Why? Because she is no longer just cast out. She now, being sent away, has a legal right. She has dignity. She has honor. It's a huge difference to what was then going on previously. Now, 50 years before Jesus, there were a couple of great teachers who dominated the Jewish discussion about how you should properly follow God. One was named Hillel, and the other guy was named Shammai. Now, these guys were big. They were very influential. They each had their own schools to train their own disciples. And the wisdom of these two dom- dominated Jewish thought. These were the thinkers of the time. Halal died around 10 AD, and Shammai around 30 AD. You know, so, you know, Jesus would have known very, was very familiar with these guys' teachings. And so, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's, Jewish thought is already being shaped by these two guys. And so Hillel is considered to be more permissive in his interpretations of the scripture. We would say, well, he's more liberal in his interpretations of the scripture. Shammai, on the other hand, was more restrictive. He was more on the conservative side, if I could put it that way. Now, it's not a question of taking these scriptures uh, more or less seriously, but one was more restrictive and narrow in his interpretation, Shammai, while the other left more room to interpretation with Hillel. You with me? Okay, so I spent a lot of time on this stuff. I was really fascinated. I have to be honest. Now, these two theological dudes have very differing opinions on Deuteronomy 24, and the question that these two got up, hung up on is what does something indecent mean? That was the question. What does something indecent, based on Deuteronomy, mean? How much or what gives the man the right to send his wife away? Now, Hilmael and Shemai have a passionate disagreement on how you translate and apply this faith. Uh, some, uh, some, dabar, uncleanliness, all right? Evra is, uh, or indecent uncleanliness, so it's dabar evra, the, the, the Hebrew terms. And so the phrase literally means the nakedness of a thing, or the indecency or improper behavior. So Shammai himself, then, he focuses on one word, uh, evra, or nakedness, and the other, halal, he focuses on of something. And based on those two focus, of those two words, they come to their conclusion. Are you with me? And it becomes a theological debate amongst the Jews. And so, if you read in the Mishnah, which is a Jewish commentary on the, the Torah, I've taken a picture here out of mine, and it's it's uh, it's it's found in Gittim, if you didn't know, if you didn't know your Mishnah, Gitim 9:10, right? Uh, basically, as you read it, you'll see that Shemai says you can't divorce your wife unless she has an affair. Hillel and in his interpreter says you may divorce her even if she burns your food. That's why I cook. I preserve the marriage. <laughs> Just saying everybody wonders why. That just we go to the Mishnah, I just don't want to have to give you a letter and send you away. (laughs) I'm so dead. And and that burning of the food is because the husband found an indecency of something. So the disciples of Hillel interpreted Deuteronomy 24 saying that if a man found disfavor in his wife for any reason, he is now within his legal rights to divorce her. And by contrast, the disciples of Shammai, they said that disfavor only pertains to sexual sin. So if a woman who was sexually immoral, the man then had the right to divorce his wife. So both schools were concerned for the rights of the man. And they had little concern for the rights of the woman. And in my opinion, thus reversing the whole concern of the Bible, the Scripture. So now, when Jesus is teaching and he uses the words divorce, he has entered into one of the most hottest topics of the discussion of the day. Who is Jesus going to side with? So Jesus is a first century rabbi. He's, he's in a very particular time and space and culture. He's influenced and he knows the thoughts that are going around here. As a matter of fact, so who is he going to side with? Hillel or Shammai? Is he going to be more conservative in his interpretation? Or is he going to be more open and loose with his interpretation? And it's interesting because when we look and study Jesus throughout the New Testament, we we see that when it comes to issues that are similar like this, that were predominant in Jewish thought, that Jesus always goes with the progressive interpretation. He always seems to somehow slide with Hillel, except on the issue of divorce, where he actually sides with Shammai. It's been said, if anyone you divorces a wife, you give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anybody who divorces a wife except for sexual immorality. And so my guess is that the Pharisees, they not only sanctioned divorce, but among the Pharisaical community, a lot of them were divorced, and their divorces were not biblical. They took advantage of the scriptures. And if Jesus' words are true and unbiblical, divorce constitutes adultery They then, as they're hearing Jesus teach, become, in their own eyes, literal adulterers. No wonder they want him dead. So what we see is that Jesus forbids divorce except in the occasion of pornea, sexual immorality, sex outside the bonds of marriage. This is called the exception clause. So in Matthew, the subject of divorce comes up twice. And in the passage, what we have here, but also in Matt 19, Jesus affirms God's rejection of divorce, but permits it in the case of sexual immorality. And his words surprise his disciples, who were likely inclined to also follow Hillel's interpretation, the looser teachings, because, you know, they, 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 but it makes perfect sense when you think about it of Genesis chapter 2 and Deuteronomy 24. And here Jesus now comes in on a more... Stricter interpretation. He affirms God's created ideal. He affirms that marriage is for life. But when one spouse breaks that covenant, veal uh, unfaithfulness, divorce then, according to Jesus, is permissible. And you think about it this way, Jesus now makes the law heavier. The only permissible reason for divorce is the one as if one of the spouses commit adultery. But in the same breath, it makes the law lighter because in the Old Testament, adultery brought the death penalty, did it not? I shared that with you. But now, the sinner can be released and hopefully to find grace and forgiveness. So if we take a time and look at what Paul says, we need to read that in addition to sexual immorality. Paul now, in the New Testament, as he's writing says that when a believing man or woman is abandoned, abandoned by their unbelieving spouse, they are free. He goes on and he expands both Jesus' and, and Shammai's biblical interpretation in First Corinthians 7. It says, but if the unbelieving partner separates it, let it be so. In such cases, be the brother or sister, is not enslaved or bound. God has called you to peace. And so to understand what Paul means, we we must ask, what does bound mean? And we know that by reading a few verses later in verse 39, a wife is bound in marriage to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, then she's free to marry. So we see that there's this complexity. It's like two pieces of paper that have been glued at the covenant, at the marriage time. You're bound. Now imagine trying to pull apart two pieces of paper that have been glued. And so from that comparison, we see that just, you know, that the widow is free to to remarry. So is the one who's abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. They're free to marry. In both cases, the covenant has been terminated, one by death and the other by this long-standing abandonment. So notice Paul has also added that God has called us to live in peace. That word peace is shalom. Shalom means this wholeness, this health, everything in its right place. And so Paul doesn't say, I have a second reason. Rather, he just continues to add to this larger principle that drives this, that God has called all of us, all of us, to live in peace. So you need to ask yourself, is there hope for shalom in your relationship? Is staying together more disruptive and destructive? You know, are there some marriages while there are so many years of layered stuff that while we believe in miracles and healing and divine intervention, but maybe something just has to die? Because God has called us to live in peace. You know, if Jesus permits divorce in the case of sexual immorality and Paul permits remarriage in the case of abandonment, it seems that the overarching principle is that if somebody has a biblical divorce, then a biblical remarriage is also possible. Of course, it's not the ideal, and it comes with all kinds of complications. In our fallen world, obviously, our Heavenly Father is both judicious but also grace-filled and compassionate is he not is he not and so divorce is a topic that is filled with hurts it's filled with wounds and it's filled with opinions and also i'd like to know how many people have had the bible of and maybe these passages quoted to them which Has caused them great pain because of what they were going through. And I'm sure if I was to ask you to raise hands, there'd be many hands going up in this room this morning. So, what then does it mean for us to deal with divorce in our midst as a Jesus community in 2017? Because, like I said, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, this was something that was frowned upon in in culture and especially in church culture, but now it's the norm. And we're afraid to talk about it as pastors because we know that, you know, 25% of our people or people who are not if just struggling with it have already gone through it. And how do we do it without being condemning? And how do we do it with being grace filled? And I hope that I can achieve that today. Because for thousands of years, people have been wrestling with the complexities and, and the stresses and the heartaches of divorce. And divorce has never been simple. And, and, and we do a huge disservice. When we make it a nice, clean sort of thing. Hate that business. How many of you have ever seen a nice, clean, simple marriage fall apart? It doesn't happen. You know, I think about those, maybe you're here today and you're trying to decide, how long do I hang in there? And and when do I simply leave? How long do I stay? Because I can't do it for one more day, Jerry. You know, when am I out of line? And, and, And when is it the only thing to do? The questions are constantly coming. And we ask them and there's no answers. And for those who have been wondering if there's been any infidelity in the person, let's say the person apologizes and says, you know, I'm sorry, it will never happen again. And yet you want to put it back together. Why? You want to do it for the kids. You want to do it for yourself. You do love the person. It's tainted love, right? You do love the person, and yet something at the very heart has, has ripped something out of your chest. And this person apologizes over and over again. And there appears to be reconciliation, but what happens if it happens again? How long do you go through this? What happens in a marriage when the trust has been shattered? But but maybe not in a sexual fa- fashion, but in a physical or an emotional abuse? And maybe it's not even you, but maybe it's your kids. Some people say, just separate. Okay. How long? How long do you live apart? Is there a point then that, that we can go long enough? You know, three years later, you know, the other person still hasn't changed. You know, do I spend the rest of my life waiting for this person to change? You know, when do you stay together for the children, even though you're, you're at each other's throats? Because that's what's good for the kids, right? And when are you actually realizing that staying together is actually terrible for the kids? Now, I've actually heard people say out loud after their parents' divorces, that finally there's peace in our house. Many people have to wrestle with these issues. Many of us have watched a friend or a family member wrestle with these questions. I've witnessed people sharing with their children that mommy and daddy aren't going to be married anymore. And the wretchedness of the painful cries of the kids still grip my heart. I still hear it. And some of you know that feeling firsthand because you're, you're children of divorce or some of you have had to have those conversations with your kids. And it's heartbreaking. I'm not sure if you know this, but I've performed a few marriages in my time. I've seen everything. I've done marriages on the coast of the ocean. I've done it on a helicopter on top of a mountain. I've even done them in a church, ironically. But it's when people come to you after the wedding, after the pomp and ceremony. And one spouse finds out the other spouse hasn't been who they say they were, and they portrayed themselves to be. In one case, one spouse found out that the other spouse was six figures in debt. After wedding day. And that debt now because of marriage is shared by both of them. So one paid their debt by half and the one incorporated a brand new debt. Or others who found out that, you know, their spouse was engaged in destructive or addictive behavior. They were able to keep it masked and none of it ever came to light until after they said the I do. And these people falsely resented them, presented themselves to their spouses. What do you do with that? That's not the person I married. I've done some weddings, I'll be honest, and I wonder how long they're going to make it. I have thoughts and feelings too. And sometimes as a pastor, I've honestly said to myself, this isn't a healthy relationship. This is not even a healthy marriage. And I watch people come together and make vows to each other only to see that relationship self-destruct. It was written on the wall a long time ago, but they never wanted to listen to counsel. In some cases, I've seen those, interesting enough, who couldn't live with each other, get divorced, get remarried to somebody else. And it all appears to work great. So how do we here at Soul approach divorce And I'll say that we're not an advocate of a divorce, but we recognize that it happens. So here at Seoul, if you're wondering what my thoughts are, here they are very clearly. We're always first and foremost for fidelity. We're for reconciliation, we're for endurance and peace as far as it is possible. Are you with me? We're always for fidelity. Married people, be true to your spouse. Don't cheat. It's mean. It's nasty. It's horrible. It's destructive. It's sin. It's absolutely awful. It shreds marriages. There I said it. Be true to your spouse. Fidelity. You said I do. You said till death do us part. You said, I love you. We all have ups and downs. You've probably had more than me, but we all have ups and downs in our relationships. And there are times at three in the morning that you're not in love. I don't know if you know that. Because they're snoring, you know. They kick you out of bed. It's all territorial. And as a good submissive husband, I, you know, I go... I like the submit part, the the dying for you, I don't know, I'm not there yet. But I'm true to you. I've had people throw themselves at me. I've had flashers in my office. I've had all different types of opportunities throughout my ministry and life and year to commit adultery on my spouse. But I made a promise, I made a pledge to death, do a part. be true to your spouse, and you would say the same thing. So we're always for fidelity. We're always for reconciliation. So if there has been infidelity, if there has been abuse or both, our intent first as a church and foremost is reconciliation. And we understand that reconciliation takes two. It takes all types of things coming together it 's never easy, but we 've always want to see marriages healed and restored always and if you 're here today and you 're having some issues in your relationship, you need to book an appointment here at Seoul and come and talk with my wife. Well, she puts me in the place i 'm pretty sure she can put you in the place too. The fact of the matter is she 's trained. And training in marriage and family therapy. This is her specialty. She is our counselor on staff. This is the person that you come and see. We also want to see marriages last. That's the endurance part. There's always going to be ups and downs. And that's part of the commitment that we make to each other. And that's part of our biblical understanding of marriage until death do us part. And so marriages that have been to hell and back uh, and have been healed need to be told, need to be encouraged that there, you know, th- this is possible. And the rest of us all need this. We need to hear these stories of endurance. We need to hear the stories of healing. And for those, um, you, know, uh, you know, we need to hear the stories of those marriages that have been solid from day one. Why? Because it gives the rest of us hope that there's a story to tell to the glory of God. And finally, there's peace, shalom, as far as possible. And so here at Seoul, we got this profound respect for the sanctity of marriage, and at the same time, understand that in reality, that sometimes, some things die, and we have to call it for what it is. Are you with me? So then, how do we live as a community, and live with each other, when, when people are walking through a separation and for a divorce? And I'll say this first and foremost, and hear me loud and clear, the story is never simple. And I'm going to go over time, so stop looking at your watches. I spent a heck of a lot of time on this one, longer than I ever have on any of my other sermons. The story is never simple. There are always two people involved in the marriage, and there's two stories. But if you get a brother-in-law, a co-worker, or a parent involved, you now have 13 stories involved in there. You tracking what I'm saying? And what happens when all these stories come across your social feed? You know, what do you do? Because we're innocent bystanders. And many times we feel that we're forced to do what? When somebody's marriage is falling apart around us, what are we forced to do? Sides. Bang. Yes. When, when getting divorced, many people have never expected that their friends would choose a side or choose a spouse. You know, are you with him? Or are you with her? And there, there is this, I guess we have to choose feeling. I have to choose. I have to pick sides. And, and the story, people, is rarely simple. And so we have to be wise to make, refrain from the quick judgment, the rapid remarks, and the decisive condemnation of any particular relationship. Your opinion doesn't matter. There may be way more going on, and you may be looking at a relationship thinking, well, that person's out of line in the marriage. But remember, you don't have all the pieces put together. There may be a world of things going on in this relationship and one spouse may be involved in all sorts of darkness and, and destructive activity. And you may run in and go to the other spouse and say, how dare you leave them? But that person may have already made a decision not to go public with the other spouse's private sins. So then one spouse looks cruel and heartless. For abandoning the relationship, and yet they might have been in a relational hell for years, and you just never knew about it. And they decided not to crucify their other spouse in public, but then you, you may have, uh, you know, have done so by condemning this spouse. You stepped in with the wrong words in the wrong time on the wrong side, and by offering your non-offered opinion, you're making it more difficult. Divorce is painful enough without a critique and condemnation of others. If you need, and you have friends, and you feel the need that you can speak into a situation, just ask for permission first. And if their friends say no, then just simply respect their wishes. Keep your opinion to yourself. But maybe you have earned the right to speak. Then if you've earned the right and you have permission, then speak honestly, speak graciously. Maybe ask more questions than anything else but you still need permission. Do not charge into people's scene. And when you find yourself in the midst of a divorce, and maybe that's some of you here this morning, have you asked yourself, have I heard from only one side? Have you heard of any other perspectives of what's going on because we all need to hear the other perspective because we could be leaving out or keeping concepts of information that are key and that would give us more of a fuller picture. I can remember people telling me that you know, their spouse was hanging out with a bunch of certain people and those people were the influences of what was going on in the relationship and yet this person wouldn't step out from those people to get another point of view. Somebody once said that marriage is the mingling of souls. If if there's a divorce, those souls have been pulled apart. And divorce is also a death of a marriage, and it needs to be grieved like the loss of a friend or a companion. And Jesus' invitation to all of us is to to go literally to the heart of our wounds and name the pain and understand it and seek to pull it apart and try to understand and come back together again and let him heal it. And so if you here today are really serious about the sanctity of this bond, of the sanctity of marriage, and you're fearful of divorce becoming too easy, especially within the church, then start with your own house. Start with your own spouse. Do that well, people. Do that well. Husbands, love your wives. Be prepared to die for them. After, of course, you do the toilets, pick up all your clothes and everything else that goes with it. But for some of us, that is dying. (laughs) (laughs) And all the women said, "Mm -hmm." If you're here and you're, you're... Dating, you're single, you're engaged, you're thinking about it. You need premarital. You need it. You need to be honest with your spouse. Uh, Pastor Jordan McClellan is putting together, we want to train some more people in premarital counseling to give it, to be on that teaching end. If you are a couple here married and uh, you want, are interested in discipling other young couples to become married, will you please see Jordan McClellan? Because a Saturday in June, We're coming together, and uh, Dwayne and Adet, myself, and Sharon will be teaching uh, people to hand it out to create more of a mentoring so that we can pour into our younger couples so that you know what's coming down the pipe, that you have some tools, that you are prepared. Do marriage well, people. In a community of trust, there should be freedom to call each other out. Gentlemen. Maybe every once in a while you have to turn to your friends and say, I don't want to ever hear you talk about your wife like that. Because guys can be like that, especially in the dressing room at the hockey or wherever. Sometimes guys mouth off and they talk about their wives, right? Maybe it's about time that we as Christian men start calling our guys into line. Speak respectfully. speak lovefully about your wife. Dudettes. Listen, he's a good man. He may be a bit slow. All right? Eventually he'll pick up his pants off the floor, but right now, treat him and love him as if he's everything that you long for him to be. All right? Be patient with us. You are patient. I've learned to put the lid down. <laughs> it's taken 28 years of marriage. I'll never forget. I heard her scream one day late at night. (laughs) Somebody forgot to put the lid down. (laughs) Five times? Oh, five in the morning. Five Five guys, too. Yeah, that's a whole other story. When we begin to treat our spouse with love and we talk positively, it affects our love for him. And we are patient to see the changes. You're going to have a stronger relationship. Husbands, she's an amazing gift from God. given to you. If you're married here, grab your spouse, put your arm around her, and give her a squeeze. I don't care if you had a fight on the way down here. I couldn't care less. Husbands. Now, she may be cold, and that's fine. Because if she's cold to you, you've done something wrong. And that's something that you need to address and come to. She's an amazing gift from God to you. Treat her that way. Husbands, treat her that way. Watch your wedding video. Remind yourself what you said. I will love you like Jesus loved the church is what you said. I will lay down my life for her. She's a precious, sacred thing. And there's this idea that we we have this light, right? This light will spill out. So be a light, people. Be a light that reminds people of what God is like. Model that in our marriage, we need to trust that we will be met by grace, that will be met by God's grace. And so I close with this. And Jeremy, if you're in your team, can come up. So maybe today I'm talking and you're in pain, because I'm very much aware of that as I've talked. I want to encourage you to invite Jesus into your world. Maybe you're a student and... You're living through the pain of your parents' divorce. Maybe you're an adult and you're living through the pain of your parents' divorce. Maybe your divorce was so long ago, but it's brought up some memories. Or maybe you're even sitting here and you're wondering, do I stay or do I go I just need to leave it with this, that Jesus invites us to go into that pain and to be met in that pain by the Savior of the world who takes it. And he begins to heal you and he gives you a mind and an understanding and the wisdom to sort it all out. And for some of us, you're going to need to forgive. And for some of us, we're going to need forgiveness and healing all at the same time. And for some of us, we can just say, Thank you, God, that I've made it this far. Stand with me. There's no easy answers here. Divorce is ugly, it's painful so a separation and I can't be of any help if I just said a prayer did a blessing and sent you on your way so this is what I'm gonna do at this cross over here I'm asking my pastoral team to to go there honey if you can go there too and if you're married if uh, your marriage is great and you just want prayer and you're thankful, we're going to invite you to come over to us. We'll pray for you and pray con- to God's continued blessing on you. If you're struggling in your marriage and you're having a hard kick at the can and whatever else, we want you to come for prayer. If you want to wait and talk with Sharon or myself or with Jordan or Jordan, it's up to you. You can pick whoever you want and we'll wait and we'll stay here as long as it takes to talk. And if you found yourself and you're in the middle and you're just going, I just, I'm done. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say that to me. I'm done. It's over. I want to pray for you too. We're a healthy community. And we respect all of you. And maybe you are a kid of divorce and you are caught in between and it kills you. Come, let us just pray for you. And let's just ask for God's peace in this whole situation. There's no easy answers. But you need to know that there's a team of people that stand behind you, will walk with you. It's hard for me not to pick sides. I just I have to be honest, that's my confession. I think sometimes a lot of people are afraid to come and talk to me because they know I'd kick their can't. But I have to reserve my opinions, I have to reserve my feelings, and I have to listen, and I have to want to try to be to the best of my ability, God's grace. And that's what we're trying to do as a community. So God, be with us as we've talked. And be with those right now who have this long litany of emotions. And I ask that, Father, today you would speak to us about your peace you have called us to live in peace and as we think about difficult decisions and processes and and messages guide us and direct us and those who are divorced may they move towards forgiveness that every ex in our community would forgive their former spouse that vows would be made never to speak evil of the other one and we pray for those whose marriages today are are barely hanging on and we ask for your divine light to shine glue Lord to bring together a renewed mingling of the souls we're not an advocate for divorce but we understand that it happens and so we pray for peace we pray for healing and we pray for restoration and God bless families hurting with the pain of separation and divorce because we know that when two people are married they mean it for life and yet at times with some people in some very complex situations it just doesn't happen that way so give peace and courage to all who have experienced the disruption caused by divorce or separation God I pray that you would help them to deal with any feelings of rejection and loneliness and grief help them above all to believe in your presence to believe in your word as a source of strength and compassion and healing and restoration And help us to be sensitive to the emotional, spiritual, and physical needs of these families. Enable us to to reach out in love. We especially pray, God, that as we continue to recognize Jesus, even during such trying times, that we will carry him with us and reach out to all our separated and divorced families with love, with compassion, and with understanding. Amen. as the band plays and you want us just to pray for you please come and let me just say this just because you come from prayer and you're going well people think we have problems in our marriage nobody cares we don't care we just want to pray for you so suck it up those who are prideful that's probably the reason if you need prayer in your marriage that's the reason is that we're prideful just come And let us wrap our arms around you. Let us cry with you. Let us support you. Let us walk with you. Let us pray God's wisdom and blessing upon you and your kids. And let us let you know that you're not alone in your struggles. And we want to rejoice with you if you've been married 40, 50, 60 years. We want to celebrate with you that you're a testimony of what God can do. So in ancient times, one who blessed extended his hands for blessing those receiving the blessing did likewise. May the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness. May he protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders that he's shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors next week. Be blessed and we'll see you next week.